Welcome to the 11 Personnel Podcast, your favorite Rams podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Rodriguez, and with me, as always, my fabulous co-host, Rich Hammond. Rich, how are we doing? Jordan, we are doing great. It's great to be back with you. I'm not going to bore everybody with the inane details of middle management and why I haven't been on the podcast in a while. Before we get to our special guest, there's only one thing that I want to say, because I know Jordan won't say it herself. And that's play callers. If you haven't listened to it already, it's okay to finish this podcast. But right after you finish this <laughs> podcast, go find play callers because I'm not going to make a commercial about it. It is, it goes beyond podcasting. It is storytelling, um, the likes of which you're not going to find anywhere else. And I know how long Jordan worked on that. It's extraordinary. So congratulations, Jordan. Thank you. And in order to avoid me getting any redder from embarrassment, I'm going to cruise right in, out of that into a segue about our guest today, who was featured uh, a, a little bit on the play callers, um, Ram COO Kevin Demoff for our annual conversation. Kevin, how are we doing? The most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> I know you tried to put us off. You tried to stave us off as <laughs> I long tried, as I tried you desperately, <laughs> but I just wanted, you know, I really just wanted to do it post play callers, you know, just so we could bask in the glory that is play callers. Although I was hoping for a best supporting audio hmm. member of the podcast, but I'm pretty sure Andrew Whitworth or Raheem is going to win that. So like, I'm just relegated to, you know, an AI generated version of executive yeah, yes. we, we word search too. Uh, when you when you word search the transcript, certain words show up a lot more than others. But you kept it, you know, pretty pretty above board. So you certainly get, you know, stable presence, stable insight. <laughs> you know, that was a uh, ooh, what an experience. But yeah, that was that was great. They were, I mean, some of the stuff Whitworth says about um, like football and art. I mean, it was really poignant. It was incredible. Someone someone should pay that guy to be an analyst. <laughs> great idea. Uh, I, I'm sure, you know, Alexa, are you listening? I'm sure the Alexa, <laughs> the Alexa is on listening. She's like, Andrew Whitworth, analyst. I should pass that up, you know, to the powers that be at Amazon. <laughs> Kevin, I, I know it's always, uh, you never have any downtime. I, I did see you uh, recently, not in person, but I'm watching the U.S. Open and and they showed John Rahm walking off the course and he passes somebody with an enormous bald head. And I go, I know that enormous bald head. It, it's Andrew Whitworth. And and then I slowed, uh, I went back to uh, to look back 10 seconds and paused it. And and there's you and Sean and I, I think Tony, right? Was Tony there yeah. also? Um, taking in the U.S. Open at the uh, L.A. Country Club. How yeah, fun we was all, that? Uh, we were all hanging out uh, by the 18th green uh, over the weekend, and Josh Kroenke was there, uh, and he had just fresh off, brought the Larry O'Brien Trophy. So we had the U.S. Open Trophy, the Larry O'Brien Trophy, and the Lombardi Trophy all there uh, together hanging out. So it was, uh, it was wow. a fun afternoon of, of watching some golf. When wow. you do something, Rich, I'm going to steal your question. We were just talking about this before you joined yes. us. Like when you go to something like that, do you bring the rings too? Or is that just like super douchey? You cannot do that. Uh, I don't think you can do that. Like, <laughs> you know, you you might have been able to while you were the only team that still had one. 
But once the Chiefs mm. get their rings, like your your cycle's passed, right? Like, so I think they had gotten their rings that week. But ultimately, to me, it was you know, maybe for a charity event or something else. But you know, those rings are in the past. They're they're great to have won. Um, but I, I do think it's a little bit odd just to like wear that out and about. But that's what we were talking about. Like, you know, oddly not to go too deep into or make this about me, but I have one and like I've never worn it in my life. And I was trying to come up this with the scenario like, when do you wear it? Like, have you ever just gone out to dinner with your wife and been like, I think I'm going to put on the Super Bowl ring tonight or or like, is it have you ever done? They're, they're kind of they're beautiful. They're they're fantastic, but they're not exactly like you know, common jewelry that you would just wear around. I think if I went to dinner with my wife wearing my Super Bowl ring, she'd look at me like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, <laughs> like, are you about, you know, we about to get a divorce? Like what is about to happen here? It would not be, would not be normal when you roll into the local taqueria with your Super Bowl ring on and be like, oh, let's just have a nice normal dinner. No, not at all. No. And by no, the way, I, I you know if we're being featured on like Netflix, you know, the quarterback, just, Perfectly normal, wear it around, right? Like, sure. oh, it just happens to be on. Yeah. Well, I yeah. think that's why Les got everyone those giant, like they're like what the plastic molds of, of the rings. Those, those are, are we everywhere. Have paper, paperweights. <laughs> yeah, paperweights. those those are everywhere. And they're, they're always making their way into different shots of uh, behind the grind along with uh, everything Jim Collins has ever written. So, um, you know, I, subtle, I feel subtle like guys. Jim, Col- <laughs> Jim Collins, you know, gave all of us books um, from our time that we've spent with him. And I feel like they make it into every shot and like, he's got residuals upon residuals from behind the grind and probably the play callers and, and everything else. So. Yeah. And by the way, uh, that series that you guys produce, I've said this before on here and, and obviously on Twitter as well, that series that you guys produce is really well done. Um, we got a great team on that and got to see some of the behind the scenes of behind the grind in terms of like they're out there every day in the spring shooting and setting everything up. And it's such an operation that quite frankly stresses me out to even think about. So kudos to them, but the spring- is behind the scenes of behind the grind, like a double <laughs> negative. Is it like Behind, behind the, grind, the behind. grind, or is it so, or is it like in a, is it ahead of the grind? It's like coals de sac, right? right. Plural, plural coals de sac. Right. And so behind the grind, it's behind the grind, behind, behind the grind, inside, behind the grind, the making of behind the grind. <laughs> Getting confused. Yeah. Let's just say all, it's good. It's all good. spring, other than seeing all the cameras out there, uh, one thing that was, startling and then you took some getting used to was the sheer volume of rookies that you have out there on the field Kevin I I am curious like first of all your reaction I mean I saw you out there practice every day and um, your reaction to getting used to like what is now a very different way that you guys have assembled this roster and are we still calling it a rebuild or is it something else now we've never called it or a remodel no you you can't like that's Slip I can't tell my... if that's a slip or if that's intentional <laughs> to try to get me to, you know, do serum. Uh, it is definitely not a rebuild, remodel, retool, re-anything, um, reinvigorate. But I, it was interesting. The first telltale sign of how different this year was, I believe this is the first year we've ever put names on helmets in the offseason, which is a, a telltale sign of how many new players we have. Right, that That's always been something, you know, I think Sean is astute and, you know, prides himself on, you know, knowing everybody right away. 
you know, unlike Les, who will be, you know, a cut downs and he's like, oh, well, Eastern Oklahoma, like, hasn't learned the guy's name yet and still is calling them by their school code. And, you know, then once they make the roster, he'll usually make the transition. Uh, but it was different, but in, in a great way. I think that's the the part that was so, this was the most different off season I think we've had in, in Sean's now seven years. Uh, but it was exactly, I think, what we needed. You know, and I think that's where the refresh, you know, invigorating, exciting, you know, from a coaching standpoint, from a player standpoint, and just an entire, you know, moving forward, there was such an energy and a, a positive vibe. And one of the things I can't wait for, you know, that will carry over certainly to you, Irvine. And I think people who have been to practices the past few years will be taken aback. And I'm not saying it's, you know, the well-oiled machine that maybe the Super Bowl teams were in training camp, but I think you're going to see a very different energy in uh, team come to life. Hmm. Kevin, I mean, I think we've talked a little bit about this before, maybe even just one on one, but the difference between building a championship level team and then trying to maintain one. Um, it's something that I've talked to general managers about in other sports, and they, they've talked about how different those two things are. It's it's one thing to take the four and 12 team from 2016 and identify all of your areas that you need to improve and go out and address them and fill them a little bit of a different thing, maybe to once you get to that, the top of that Hill to go, okay, now we're here. How do we stay here? Um, is that, is that something you were able to, or, or did you even allow yourself to get that far to think about, well, after we win the Super Bowl, this is this is how it will look or this is how we will do things. And whether the answer is yes or no there, did, was it was it different than you anticipated it would be once you got to the top of that mountain? It was different. I mean, I, look, I think in every league it's hard, right? But in the NFL, nobody's repeated in 20 years. And really, if you go through in the history of the salary cap era, there have been two repeat champions, the, the Broncos in 97, 98. Those teams ultimately, I think, ran into salary cap fines and some other issues. Uh, and then you had the Patriots in 03 and 04, right? I mean, that's, you know, basically since 1993, 94 and 30 years, there have been two groups that have done it. And the NFL is hard in a number of ways. One is, you know, it's the only league where the better you do, your schedule punishes you. Right. It's not just you draft later, you know, but you're playing a harder schedule. It is different. You played, you know, I think the thing we probably underestimated still playing 21 games, being the first, you know, one of the first team, us and the Bengals to do that with a team that was slightly older. But look, I, I think you always know it's hard to to maintain. Jordan, and I had this conversation last year. Everybody's done it differently and everybody's failed. Right. So there's no playbook of how you do it well, how you don't. And, and the real question is, you know, I think it's where you are in your team's life cycle, potentially when you win it. It's different when you win with Patrick Mahomes in his 20s than it is when you win with Tom Brady at 40 or Matthew Stafford at, at 34. And I think, you know, even if you look at the past five years of champions, I mean, essentially it's been two, two Patrick Mahomes, two Tom Brady's and us. I think even if you start to go back you know, the evolution. So I think the one thing that I would say is maintaining a Super Bowl caliber team when you don't have a younger quarterback in their prime. And by younger, Matthew is by no means old, but I think it's in the evolution of, you know, even once you pay a quarterback when they're younger, it's it's not as difficult 
you know, to go, you can stretch it out. You can move dollars around because you have a seven, eight year time frame, you know, of which to work with. I think that's, you know, for, for starters, that's the one challenge. But look, everybody, when you have a number of free agents, they all get valued more from coming from winning franchises. I don't know what it is, a 15, 20% premium on players who win a Super Bowl versus other. I mean, I look just at like a Juju Smith-Schuster, you know, a year ago at this time was signing for $3 million in Kansas City. Then he goes and gets a, you know, nine, $10 million deal in New England. There's a premium that goes to those players. Your players become, you know, more valuable. Your coaches become more valuable. The, you know, I think one of the hardest parts certainly for us is, you know, our staff have been picked clean year over year, but when you lose seven, eight coaches on February 25th, the replacements are hard, right? And we can get into the play callers and the dynamics of you've been picked over for five, six years, but there's no replacement for eight coaches after the whole coaching cycle has gone. And then there's the rest and the recuperation. And, you know, I, it is not a coincidence. And by the way, I would like to say we're better than this. Sean's been the head coach for six years. We've made the playoffs in four of them, won the division, three of them. The two years we missed were both post Super Bowl. And, you know, that post Super Bowl time is so hard to catch your breath, get healthy, do all the things you want to do into a normal time frame and your decision making is cramped you know and you probably don't make as good of decisions or things that happen in the super bowl and the playoff run change the decisions you think you were going to make um and, and i think those are the elements that that sometimes when you look back you know did you make your best decisions you know there's nothing that we did that was fundamentally wrong it's just you know maybe had you had more time to debate, you might have taken a different path, how you allocate resources. And, you know, I, I think one thing I look back on, you know, the, you know, both years, you know, maybe instead of some of some younger long-term solutions, whether it was, a, you know, Eric Weddle, a Clay Matthews, and Alan Robinson, a, a Bobby Wagner, you become so attractive that, you know, kind of the, those guys who were probably on that third deal that, you're, you love the leadership. You love everything they bring. They all played really well for, I mean, Alan was hurt a little bit, all had great years with us, but like, would that have been better invested in a younger player who's going to stay more years, right? Like, I think those are some of the questions you kind of look back on and say, well, would we have made that decision, you know, in a different vacuum, you know, if we weren't as attractive as the Super Bowl champions, I, I think just everything gets harder. It's under a microscope and look, it's the, it's the most champagne of problems. Um, right. But it is, the building is easier because it's a little bit less under the microscope. Not every decision you make is as magnified. You get a little bit longer lead time. But when you're in the thick of it, you know, and we were for, for five years, you know, kind of as perennial Super Bowl favorites, you know, maintaining that. And I, I think that's the, Jordan and I have had this conversation. The one thing that, I would take umbrage with is people saying, well, they went all into the Super Bowl. No, we were, we had a Super Bowl window for five years. You know, we were the best right. record in the NFC. Mm -hmm. you know, we went to multiple Super Bowls, won one division title. It's not like we were three and 14 a number of years, spent a bunch of money, won a Super Bowl, went back. Like we may have won the Super Bowl towards the end of whatever the quote unquote window might have been, but that window was open for five years. You know, we took great advantage of it. And the all-in narrative, we still have, I mean, we talk about the, we still have the most picks this year in the NFL. You know, we have all of our picks, you know, moving forward from here on out. I, I just think 
some of that is so misguided. It's a prisoner of the moment post-Super Bowl. Right. And then even if you look at how our season went last year, the amount of injuries, the amount of change, you know, some of the places where continuity would have helped you, we just, you know, we just didn't have that ability to to respond in ways we might have had if we hadn't gone the previous year. I always yeah. thought the all in thing was too. I mean, you heard that we heard the same thing in 2018 when you signed you you got Akeeb and Marcus and Dominic and Sue. Oh, the Rams are all in this year. And then like two years later, it's the same thing. Like it's well, just remember, it's a lazy narrative, I think. You know, I remember in the after we lost the Super Bowl in 2019, it's oh, they have no picks and you know, you know, are their players hurt and banged up or are they you know, and they have no salary cap space, and then lo and behold, we were in, you know winning the division in the Super Bowl a couple of years later. And look, I, to get to the Super Bowl is really hard. Um, you know, to to make it once, to make it a number of times, it's why you give the Chiefs amazing credit, you know, the Patriots and and their run. You know, we've been in that conversation. And by the way, I do not believe our window is over. Um, I believe it will look different this time around. Uh, but I fully expect us to be, you know, competing for, for Super Bowls for the next decade and you know, different personnel, different looks, but, you know, we've noted this. I think we had three starters in the Super Bowl in 2022 who were starters in 2019. And maybe that's, you know, yeah, Tyler Higby was hurt and Cooper Cup was hurt, but that team changed over significantly. Um, and if you had said, you know, following the 2019 loss that a couple of years later, we'd be back with Odell Beckham Jr., Vaughn Miller, Matthew Stafford, you know, leading the way, trying to help us win a title, people would have looked at us like we were nuts. Um, you know, that Eric Weddle would be coming back. I just, this league changes very quickly year to year. And I think that's the hard part. Maintaining in this league in any year is hard. Um, that's what makes the NFL great. The parity, the fact that teams go worst to first, that everybody's got a shot. Um and, you know, but then you watch in other leagues. You watch, I mean, we were fortunate enough that Colorado Avalanche won a title. Uh, they bring back most of their team. And they, you know, I give them a ton of credit. They suffered through a lot of the same things the Rams did. You know, injuries. You know, Gabriel Lannisgaard gets hurt. You know, they're kind of scuffling midseason. Now, they found their way out of it and, and won the division, kind of ran out of steam. But if you compare notes, there are a lot of similarities. And defending your title in whatever league you're in is really hard. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You guys, I mean, it's obviously everything that happened last year probably has forced an inward look at some of the ways in which you'd have to adjust, whether it's, hey, let's truly diagnose kind of the injury situation. Uh, Let's truly diagnose the team building. Let's truly diagnose kind of like where we're at now. And, And you brought it up earlier in your point. When you talk about this, a lot of this does come back to the quarterback, right? And how things are structured around the quarterback's deal and how things are structured around his active availability on the roster. Um, So, you know, there's obviously been some reports out recently that, you know, you guys tried to trade Matthew Stafford. And then there was another report out that you guys tried to restructure him. And I'm just kind of wondering what real, what happened 
Um, and also kind of, I have a lot of follow-ups about the position and how you guys view it and how you guys are thinking about its longevity and, and all of those types of things. But first and foremost, I think we do want to hear from you on that. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think when you get to those conversations frustrate me because, you know, I, I think it's trying to inject narratives that aren't there. Um, you know, and, and look, I know the reports that, you know, we were, trying to trade Matthew. We were not actively trying to trade Matthew. I know Les has rebuffed that before. It's just not the case. You know, I think if you want to be in the reality of the NFL, there are 10 teams this year that at least that are going to have different quarterbacks, you know, than were their starting quarterbacks last year. You know, we were obviously aggressive in remaking our roster, you know, in March. It would be naive to think the people didn't inquire, you know, about what was going to happen with the player who a year before won the Super Bowl. And, you know, that part, but I think it's different than whether people inquire, whether they're casual conversations. We value Matthew highly. Sean made that clear to him in the offseason. Les did. I think everybody did. You know, and look, when you hear the report, you know, the one thing that frustrated me was, you know, this notion that we just were trying to get away from the 59 million and that was the only way to do it through trade. That tells you that you didn't have an understanding of the situation. Matthew's dollars after 2022 were unguaranteed. We could have walked away this year free and clear for zero. No future money owed. So there was no need to restructure. If you wanted out of Matthew's deal, you could have walked away. You didn't have to trade him to relieve the 58 and a half million. You could have just walked away. So, you know, to me, that's where there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what his deal was that drives the narrative, oh, we were desperately trying to get rid of that. And, you know, where I think people say, oh, well, 58 and a half million. How does that play into the context? Jimmy Garoppolo just signed for 58 and a half million for the first two years in March. You know, Derek Carr just signed for 60 million over two years in March. So it's not like this is some outlandish deal. And I'm, there are plenty of quarterbacks this year who signed for 80 million plus, you know, in the first couple of years. So 15 and a half million, when you're talking over the next two years, is really not top quarterback money. Um, but I think very early on, as we went through the process, you know, I think Les addressed this in his pre-dress press conference. You know, we had three pillars, which were Matthew, Cooper, and Aaron. And we really thought there was a chance to look at the roster around them and change the way it was structured to try to keep guys longer term so that all the players who were coming up for contracts didn't have to go to the compensatory free agency market that we could, you know, I don't want to say fundamentally become a draft and develop team, but that we could relook at how, give us more optionality than we had currently. Uh, there were no discussions with Matthew about restructuring his contract. We knew what was on it, but it could have, you know, because it was unguaranteed, could have been zero. And if we had really wanted to restructure a contract, you just walk away from it and say, hey, we'll have a conversation from there. But I think that the biggest point is it misses this organization, you know, fully committed to Matthew believe in him, believe in what he did, you know, view last year as an anomaly for a number of reasons. You know, I think organizationally, I would say we let all of our players down last year, not just Matthew. We weren't good enough, you know, around and whether it was the line combinations, whatever it was, we weren't good enough as an organization. That's not Matthew's fault. It's not the offensive line's fault. It's not anybody else's fault. It, that's just the truth. When you go five and 12, it's an organizational five and 12. And, you know, I think, Jordan, you've had the ability to see it. Matthew is fully healthy this year. He's looked amazing, you know, this spring. 
you know, we've got to do a better job protecting him and staying healthy up front than we did a year ago, but it's less said. He is a pillar. Um, we value him highly. Now, again, if someone had come in offering a ridiculous trade package, I think you owe it to your organization to listen the same way you would anyone. I think less said people called about nine players during the offseason. That's grown probably since that time. And I think the one thing about us, we're always aggressive in the pursuit of advantages, edges, trying to imagine what we can be. And, you know, but this year that was always predicated on how do we get better with Matthew Stafford as our quarterback and give him a chance to go win another Super Bowl ring with the Los Angeles Rams. And anything beyond that, I think we get in this time where people want to take morsels and exaggerate them because it's July it's quiet. <laughs> There's nothing else to talk about. And look, I, I think that's a case here of, of where this went. But, you know, we couldn't be more excited to have Matthew here. Kind of a two part question along the same topic is is like we don't see, obviously, how these conversations go when you're talking about what your plan is going to be. <laughs> And communicating that with the players involved, uh, Matthew sort of, and Aaron has before as well alluded to, this has been communicated with me, like where we're at and how does that work? Do you guys go directly to the player? Do you sometimes talk to the agent in terms of some of the logistics and structures of how things are going to work? Do players even, I mean, I know everyone's different. Like some players probably aren't looking at like what over the cap to see like where everyone else on the roster fits around them. Right. But Matthew strikes me as someone who is, I mean, because of the deal he signed with you guys initially, um, you know, a couple after the super bowl, he, he strikes me as someone who has considered that type of like what the team building actually is. So how do you have that conversation? And, and also how do you have a conversation uh, with the quarterback and beyond the, the quote unquote, as let's call them what, what weight bearing walls, which I would feel. Yeah, weight, weight bearing walls. If I were referred to as a weight bearing wall, I would not feel great about that. I get he meant it as a compliment, but it just, you know, but at the same time, like, how do you have that conversation where you let people know where you're at and where the team is at in a, in a very honest way? And then, and then vice versa, the, the head coach, how do you have that conversation with him as well when things are going to look very different than, than what he's used to? Well, look, I think. I'll take the first part, which is, you know, Sean and Les sit down with the player. And, you know, I think when the cases with all three, it was all three were coming off of injuries, making sure they understood what the plan was. No different than we would with, you know, our fans and kind of be transparent. Here's where we're headed. And, if, and then the first part is they're going to be key pieces of that. And if they're not on board with that, then we need to have a conversation, you know, because obviously in a young team, not just their talent, but their leadership is going to be key. And it's not going to work if you have three players who have won a Super Bowl who feel they're not part of the future. And I think, you know, what was so impressive about all of them is they were all excited about the chance to go do this with a new group and to lead in a different way, you know, than they had. And I, you know, I remember Sean Lessing after their post-draft press conference, press conference, when they talked about drafting Kobe Turner, you know, Aaron just saying, I want guys who are just going to be here and work hard. Right. I think Matthew was excited about, Hey, let's get back and get everybody healthy and, you know, play that way. Cooper, the same way. I give them all tremendous credit. They've been amazing leaders, you know, through this offseason. they have been for our franchise for a long time and a lot of it's leading by example. So I think it's understanding that this is going to be what this year looks like. Hopefully you understand where we're coming from. 
hopefully you buy in and you're going to be leaders. And I think that's the first and foremost. And all of them were excited, understood, were excited, and have been part of that thought process. Look, I think the second question is, this isn't something that the team decides and tells Sean, hey, this will like Sean's an integral piece of how we move forward this way. <clears throat> and I think there's a, this was complete organizational buy-in on a rebuild, restructure, retool, not a rebuild, but I should say, I'll have to strike that from you the record, it. right? You, you said it. I said it. <laughs> we got it. We trapped it. That was my strategy came, right? from earlier. That was my strategy. Oh, but, but I, <laughs> you know, I think everybody looked, the easy thing to do last year would have said, the team was hurt. You know, we're very, you know, we were in the Super Bowl. We'll just get these guys healthy, make some changes, and we'll be right back. And I, I think we certainly could have done that. I think the harder thing is to take a deep look and say, how many more swings with this roster are you going to get? One, maybe two. Is that really the stage we're at as an organization where we're willing to take one or two swings at the expense of four or five more years? Or how quickly do we think we can reimagine this roster construct and get back to where we think we're competitive? And the answer is with, you know, Matthew Cooper and Aaron and roster, you feel you can do it in a couple of months. And, that you know, you really look at this team and believe, yes, we can go compete. And, but if somehow this year doesn't produce a deep playoff run, you're not set back by what you did this year. You're still moving forward, right? And I think that's the, the difference of trying to weigh the percentages of where you're at. And, you know, the NFC, if you look, long-term is pretty wide open. You know, there is right now a, you know, certainly a difference in, you know, the AFC seems to have a lot of the young quarterbacks, you know, who have been drafted first overall. And so when you look at the, you know, who's set up in the NFC, there are far fewer teams, I think, that right now can lay claim to a grip on the NFC over the next eight, nine, 10 years. Then you might look at and say that in the AFC Certainly, there are some te teams that are ahead of the pack there. When you look at that and say, how do we get to be one of those teams that continues, you know, a run that we've had for the past five, six years? It became very clear that there was an opportunity here to really shift on the fly um, and build up this younger core, keep adding those pieces while you had these, you know, perennial all pro players in your roster. Use the, you know, what we believe is an advantage in our coaching staff. Um, moving forward, get back quickly and be there. But yeah, I think the other misnomer I would say that that frustrates me a little bit in the conversation around our team this year is we did not have to be as aggressive in remodeling this team as we were this year. I, I think everything we do is as an aggressive nature, but we could have easily restructured some contracts, kept this going. And this was not the necessary result of going and winning Super Bowl in the trades. I think this was an aggressive attempt to really overhaul the roster quickly and to infuse it with youth more than it was dictated by anything that happened in the past. And I think that to the Sean and Les's credit, it was once you envisioned this strategy, everybody was really excited about 
building something new. And it could look potentially very different than the way, you know, we won a Super Bowl in 2022. 2019 was different than 2022. And I hope we're right back there in 23, 24, 25 in the next, you know, within the next three years. And that that team looks very different than the 22 team. You know, all that matters is are you getting better each day and are you getting closer to a championship, not further? If I could pivot slightly, um, Kevin, you know, I have two subjects that I discuss basically, and one of them, we'll get to the other one in a minute. We're saving it for the finale, but, uh, (laughs) but I am a run game aficionado. Um, and, uh, I, I am curious about just the way that you, I, I, I have no interest in, you know, kind of relitigating what happened with Cam Akers in, in 2022 or or asking you to explain that my, my only question would be, as you went into the off season and you, you looked at kind of that whole room holistically or, or, you know, Cam's role in that, were you confident or how confident were you, I guess, that that situation had been resolved and that you're going to go into 2023 with everybody kind of on the same page with the ability for that room and cam within that room to elevate um, in 2023. And how important is that um, when, when we kind of talk about the whole context of the quarterback and the offense and the offensive line and all of that, there's a few questions in there, but I'm just curious kind of where <laughs> I'm not even sure there is a question in there. That's just, yeah. you know, also, how, how are the running backs ram- doing? Also, also I want to say, that- you know, machinations of a run game aficionado who, you know, wants yes. to walk back in the locker room and ask Sean about running the ball. Uh, I do uh, miss it. Three yards I- in a cloud's yeah. assessed question. Yeah. But I also do want to say like, in terms of his comment about not wanting to relitigate, relitigate away. Uh, we're not going to stop you from saying anything. Sure, yeah. But also, also, uh, if people do want to read all about that, they can look at theathletic.com. But anyway, <laughs> continue. <laughs> look, I, I, I think I think there are a couple of things that get lost in the Cam Maker story. The one is the heroic comeback he made to play in the 2022 playoffs. And what I think that's important is this is an injury that takes most people a year to come back from, you know, and realistically he should have been hitting his stride and the comeback and playing in 2022. And I think, you know, coming back as quickly as he did um, and, you know, having great success in Arizona, you know, and we couldn't run the ball in the Super Bowl and, you know, some of those against the 49ers, but I think that certainly changed People just expect him to pick right back up where he left off. And I remember last year sitting, having a conversation. And, you know, at the time it was right when Saquon Barkley was starting to to hit his stride last year and have a pretty good year. And there was an interview with Saquon where he said, you know, last year I wasn't even certain I could get a first down if the hole was there. You know, this year I feel back to being, you know, like myself. And I, I think some of, there was a lot of different things with Cam, but I think ultimately if you're going to go back, the, and what you saw at the end of the year was a fully healthy, confident player. Um, much closer to the player we had in, you know, 2020, where at the end of the year, he was the best player on our team, essentially. You know, certainly in an offensive, you know, Cooper got hurt. But you go back to those playoff runs against Seattle, you know, and Green Bay. Cam Akers was, you know, driving that offense at the time. And I think you saw that again at the end of last year. And, you know, you can get into the play callers and the marriage of the run and the pass and the offense and some of the different changes um, but I think what you saw was all of the ability and, you know, the mindset of Cam Akers that, you know, he felt comfortable in his role as a lead running back again. And I think that was where you pick up and build off of and see nothing this offseason 
you know, that has changed that. And I think, you know, the, you know, I think when you're looking at building a running back room, you know, you're hoping for complementary pieces. And, you know, Kyron Williams, I think, has certainly shown that, you know, he was fully healthy this offseason, you know, having ups and downs last year. And I think that was one of the hard part for a running back room period last year is, you know, almost every running back got hurt in training camp. Hard to develop continuity around that. Hard to develop continuity in the run game when you're losing guys and and changing. We were falling behind um, in games, and I think that changed how we looked at the run game versus being ahead and pressing that as an advantage and certainly using run pass. You know, we just we had fewer plays per game. You know, all of that, I think, compounded to the run game, whereas you got to the end of the year, we were more balanced as a team. We actually were ahead or tied or, you know, in the games more at the end of the year. Um, and I think the running game was all a reflection of that. But I, I expect, you know, to pick up and, you know, where we finished last year and being committed to it. I think even, you know, we didn't necessarily have the best offensive line. We were down to our, you know, 18th, 19th combinations towards the end of last year. But at least we had some continuity the last three or four weeks. And you could be like, okay, this run works. This run doesn't work. And, you know, hopefully we can stay healthy during camp. And I expect to pick up, you know, Ronnie Rivers set a great off season. And I think even, you know, bringing back a Sony Michelle, who's such a great presence, not only in the running back room, but for this team, you know, across the board um, will help. And then, you know, you have a youngster like Zach Evans, who, you know, when you're a six round pick kind of learning the way you don't get a ton of touches in, you know, off season, especially there's not a ton of, you know, working on the run game and OTAs is kind of pointless when no one's wearing pads uh, <laughs> and you can't touch anybody and you can't really block, but It'll be exciting to see him, but I, I think we've got a really good group. I, I think they have defined roles um, right now, probably for the first time, you know, in a while, given the different skill sets. And, you know, I think it's a great credit to, you know, Cam and how he evolved from last year to Sean and to the entire team. You know, those situations could go worse and get worse. And I think the fact that everybody, you know, made it a positive and a building block rather than the end is a credit to all those involved. Kind of to that point, obviously what you said about nobody can actually hit each other, no one's in pads, the football isn't real outside of philosophy, like that caveat aside, was there a little bit of a shift in the way you guys thought about the offensive line position? We're seeing now that even though Sean has kind of been known for so many years as like the outside zone guy, right? (laughs) Um, You're seeing more teams across the league mix it up on the inside a little bit more as defenses change, how they defend you and seeing all those types of things. And Sean's talked about this in the past where uh, this was before Cam got hurt, actually, with the Achilles, where, you know, introducing a little bit more of that power stuff um, might be the thing. But then, you know, injuries and then things derail and then last season happened. But he also started seeing you guys maybe look at the offensive line position a little differently because it seems like you're getting like larger (laughs) along the offensive line. Um, Am I on track with any of that or is there, or is it like, Hey, we're not going to keep the way we, we're not going to change much about the way we evaluate offensive linemen, or is there a little bit of a shift that happens um, as you guys start to think about kind of the, where you guys are going? I, you know, I think Sean would probably shoot anybody if we talked about where the run game was going. Tell you know, me honestly. A, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not. Yeah, that's a that's a September <laughs> conversation for the Seahawks more than it is. Is is he there know, with you right now, Kevin? Yeah, Are he, you feeling he's, safe? He's there telling you know, <laughs> no, reminding me that you can't talk about this. But look, I, I think the 
you know, the evolution, we probably have gotten bigger. Um, but I, look, I think the hardest part about the offensive line is just, it's probably the hardest position right now to draft and develop, you know, the way they play in college isn't how they play in the NFL, right? It's a very different, you're running 90 plays, you know, you're very basic schemes. You're really not pass protecting, you know, and then you get to them to the NFL and, you know, because you have only so many padded practices, you know, you're just not getting a chance to really draft and develop them. And if you have to have them come in and play right away, it can be tough, even those, you know, who I, I think play in pro systems. So I, I think that perspective, you know, the time, how you're growing it. But I think when you look across, you know, this year, we're going to be much more closer to a homegrown line, I think, than we've been in a long time. Um, and I think that will have its advantages and in, in how that plays out. But look, I, I think I read your tweets. You had like 32 different possible offensive line combinations. And I think that'll be <laughs> one of the great parts about camp is seeing, you know, true competition across those spots. Who goes and wins those spots? And what's the best you know, what's the best, it's not only the best starting five, but quite frankly, what's the best eight or nine people to dress on game day? You know, what combinations give you the best opportunities? You know, people, anybody who's a backup has to play multiple positions, just the way the game works. You know, you got to be a center guard. You got to be a guard tackle. You know, there aren't just a lot of third tackles who want to play tackle, third guards who want to play guard. It's just not the way it's designed. And I think, you know, where these scenarios play out will be the fun part about camp. And I think that's one of the great parts about training camp this year on a whole is you would go in the past few years and maybe there were two to three spots on the roster that were probably up for grabs. Um, and you didn't know where they would come from, who would be, you know, maybe the Lance McCutcheon, you know, who came out of nowhere and, and stole a spot or, you know, you try to think of some of those guys uh, throughout the year, you know, this year, there are probably more spots that are, you know, up for grabs, but even more, there are people who could be starters. There are people who could be off the roster, right? And I think that's going to make for the most competitive training camp, you know, that we've had in a long time, which is guys aren't just, Hey, I'm going to be a backup swing guy. I could be starting, you know, if not, I, I might be pushed down the roster. I could be starting that inside linebacker. I could be not on the team. I could be starting. Like, I think that is going to be what makes for an unbelievable camp because, you know, there are very few positions right now that are etched in stone. Um, and anybody who goes in and has a great July and August can really lay a claim to they could be starting week one. Um, and anybody, I think, who walks in thinking that they've got a, a spot, you know, ensconced is is probably you know going to be in for a rude awakening. I know uh, you've stayed with us here for a while already, and I promise we won't keep you too much longer. But kind of along that same note before I know Rich, Rich and I have two logistics organizationally lo- organizational logistics questions we're dying to get to, but um, the injury stuff, I mean, we know how secret a lot of that, those studies are kept and, and obviously Reggie Scott with the reputation that he has. Um, But did you guys learn, is there anything you can share about just the way that injuries unfolded with in such dramatic fashion for you guys last year? I mean, obviously every single one of them was a different situation and a different circumstance but did you guys when you went back over kind of the debrief of of last season were there patterns that emerged at all or was there anything that um you guys talked about as a staff with your sports science group um that you learned from the experience last year i think you try to find larger patterns you know we had been one of the healthiest teams in the league the last you know six seven years 
you know, games missed. And so the first question is, is 2022 an outlier or is it a new normal, right? And you're not going to know that until you get into 2023 and 2024 and how that works. But I do think, you know, getting back to the same question about roster construction and maintaining, I think the closest year we've probably had injury wise to 2022 was 2019. You know, the year you went to the Super Bowl, you played deeper, you played later. And, you know, last year we didn't have much of an off season. You know, we weren't pushing the guys as hard because they were coming back from being tired, being injured. You know, did that play into it? Were we not as ready for camp, you know, physically because we played longer? I think those are some of the things that you don't know the answer to until you start to see something different. And when you're in the middle of it, I mean, you keep getting hurt. But the truth of the matter is when you start throwing guys in who haven't been practicing as starters, who just joined your team, they're more susceptible to getting injured anyways. They don't know the playbook as well. They haven't repped, you know, the movement as well. And so if you think about a team that practices a certain play 200 times from April through, you know, September, you put someone in in October who's never repped that and it's, hey, on this step you go here, on this step you go here, you know, and they're trying to do it full speed in a game week, you're more likely to get hurt. And so I think it's trying to understand that, you know, for us, you know, the average age of the team last year probably had ticked up. You know, we're typically, the window in the NFL is, I think they're usually 20 teams that are somewhere between 25.3 and you know, 26.3. It's not a huge window, but we had ticked up, you know, higher to the 26s. You know, and even if you look to the players who were playing snaps, it tended a little bit higher. You know, I think for us, trying to get that number back down, um, was important, you know, not necessarily the expense of getting rid of good players, but just understanding, you know, hey, if there's a second or third year player who can go in and do it versus, you know, and I think that's, you know, this time of year, everybody says, oh, so-and-so is available. You know, they can come in and play meaningful snaps for you. And you're like, yeah, they're 29. Are they really going to help you grow for the long term? Is that the best? You know, there's an opportunity cost to every practice rep, to every snap that someone takes who may not be part of your long-term plans. But I, I do think there were a lot of deep dives done. And again, if you want to be a great organization, you can't just take last year as an anomaly and say, we're going to ignore the data. You have to look at everything last year. And it could be very simply that the team was worn out from 2021, playing 21 games, a long run, an older group, and that everything this year reverts to the mean that had been positive. But banking on that without truly studying it, without truly studying your roster, I think would be doing disservice you know, to every person's organization, to all of our fans. That is not what, you know, if you want to be self-critical, probably beyond what people would have done. I think had anybody stood up at the end of last year and said, we were really hurt. It was a tough year. Let's go run it back. I think right now, I'm sure people will be predicting us for the playoffs to compete, all of that. I think it takes, you know, a real skill as a group to say, hey, this may be something deeper. Let's make sure we explore that and prevent it from happening again, even if it was an anomaly. Because if it turns out to be an anomaly, great, that's fine. If you actually, it's an anomaly and you've spent more time trying to prevent it, even if it wasn't, you're going to be better off. Okay, we're getting to the time. Rich is like yes. amping himself up over there. You can, I know listeners can't see us. Um, yes, I probably feel better, but right, oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah, but but also Rich is like he's he's like 
doing his little pregame speech to himself over here because his favorite part of the whole show is coming up. But Kevin, my logistical question, my organizational question I wanted to ask you was, um, do you have anything to update us on with the Woodland Hills facility? I know fans are are pretty curious about um, any sort of procedural stuff or timelines, anything like that. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we went in front of the homeowners and we have now filed an application with the city of Los Angeles to move what is our Thousand Oaks set up to our land in Woodland Hills. So I think for those people who are listening for the first time, we now own, Stan owns 100 acres uh, at the Warner Center in Woodland Hills. One is a defunct mall that we bought um, that was 34 acres. Then we bought a, basically a defunct office building. That's another 30 plus acres. Um, and then after that, uh, Stan purchased the village at Woodland Hills from West, which is a fully operational, great outdoor mall that you can go hang out in right now. Um, the first step is things in Los Angeles take time. You know, if you're going to go look at developing a hundred acres together, there's a lot of planning, thought, study, you know, what density can it hold, what's the right mix of retail apartments, office space, practice facility, you know, Westfield had gotten some entitlements previously uh, for the mall site, you know, are those the right entitlements for what we need? Are those not right? You know, what conversations we need to have with the community? You know, I think if you look at what, you know, Stan's done at Hollywood Park, you know, this was not just about a practice facility. This is really about creating, you know, a new urban center, you know, at Warner Center, making the best possible. Those things are going to take time. Um, and the, so the first step for us is, okay, how do we relocate our center of gravity to, Woodland Hills and establish, you know, that beachhead and, and be part of the community because it will take, you know, once you factor in environmental review planning, this is a couple year process. Um, you know, so we're just starting to imagine what Woodland Hills could be. Um, but that first step, you know, we're, we don't even have drawings or renderings of what it could be. We've talked conceptually. Do we build more apartments? Do we build more office? You know, what kind of cool, crazy ideas, you know, could we do here? Um, that to me is a long-term process. In the meantime, hopefully after this season, you know, we'll be able to look at whether we can expedite a move to, to Woodland Hills. But, you know, for this season, we're in Thousand Oaks, we're at Cal Lutheran. We've loved being there. We've had great success. Um, and, and that will be that. And from there on out, we'll see. While you're thinking outside the box, all I submit for consideration is multiple cop- coffee shops on campus. That's my only, that's my only contribution to the, to the creative mm-hmm. ideation process. And breakfast burritos, or are we just just coffee shops? <laughs> Listen, man, I don't have the power to ask for anything. All right, so that's just I'm well, just you, putting it out there in the universe, man. All right, you're, that's, you're I'm just, just you know you're just throwing it out there. We have a great possibility. You know, I'd be excited to get to to Willen Hills and begin you know to be part of that journey. If you know anything about Stan, he's eminently patient, does everything first class, and has a huge vision for what things can become. And you know that takes time. Uh, and, you know, I have no doubt when this is over and done with, we will have a practice complex that will be amongst the world's best um, and, and can't wait, you know, to get there. But in the meantime, we've won plenty of games at Cal Lutheran. We can win plenty of games that set up, you know, at, at Woodland Hills. And, you know, we'll be excited if that that move happens. It'll shave a little bit of commute time off for for everybody. But and look, there's a ton of food around there now. They just opened great new Topanga Social is a great new food hall. Um, over in that area. So this podcast is not sponsored by (laughs) Tavangan. It's it's sponsored by Westfield. We don't get to, you know, (laughs) 
it, you know, uh, it's not the normal, you know, we won't go through our ongoing joke of the normal advertisers that we have. Westfield doesn't fit that bucket. We're not even, you know what? I'm just going to skim right past that one. Yep. <laughs> Rich, now it's time for, it's Rich, time for a mad read, Rich. Rich, you, you know. can read whatever you want, man. Uh, uh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Gosh, Kevin, I don't know what else to ask you um, other than. Uh, well, you have two listen, huge listen things. Listen to him drawing this out as long mm-hmm. as he can. He, he's, he's like drawing he's it out, but this. the reality is he has two huge things that he could go with right here that are part of his, you know, historical knowledge. So I was going to ask you about the other one too, which I think you, I, I think we're on the same page here. I was going to close with that one, but um, all right. All seriousness, because you you know, Kevin, as well as anybody, people are very curious about uniforms. And there have been a lot of teams around the NFL. I don't I don't know the number, but it did introduce, you know, alternative sets this this offseason, uh, the ability to introduce the alternate helmet uh, color uh, for the first time. You guys decided not to this this offseason. Um, if you could just explain why you chose not to this offseason. Um Part one, part two, B or B, are they coming next off season? And um, maybe part three, is that still an ongoing process? Have your are you guys still talking about how that might look, or have you already made a decision? Yeah, so I, the answer part one, which I know will be disappointing news to some, we are not going to introduce a new jersey this season. We looked at a lot of different concepts um, over the past year, and none of them just felt like the right jersey to introduce you know at this time at this moment uh whether it was looking at you know true alternates at throwbacks you know at different concepts historically there was just nothing that seemed like a great fit um and while you know i think we've always been clear that we have the ability to add uniform i think we've also always said we're not just going to add a uniform for the sake of adding uniform and I, i think that's where really you know the group landed this year uh you know think we feel very comfortable with the uniforms we have in the closet right now, you know, especially with last year's change to making the white uniform, uh, you know, our primary away uniform. I don't think next year we're necessarily in a different track. Um, you know, I think we'll continue to explore a different idea would have to pop up next year than what we've already explored. Um, you know, I, I think the earliest we're probably looking at is 2025. If we were to say, Hey, there's, there's a real change you know, we're going to make here. Um, but ultimately, you know, I know it's, you know, a source of pride, a source of interest for our fans. You know, it's important to make these decisions, you know, with thought, um, with care to the brand. And, you know, Kat and her team has spent a lot of time reviewing this in, in terms of everything we do from a brand perspective. And I, I feel comfortable in, in where we're all at. And, you know, excited to go forward. And look, I always think this is the, one of the most important things about uniforms is you make your own history in uniforms. You know, our white uniforms that we wore in the Super Bowl and won the Super Bowl with will always have a part of Rams lore because we won a Super Bowl in them. You know, the more memories you make in your uniforms, you know, what those become. And, you know, and I, I know there's always going to be pent up demand for the past. You know, I worked in Tampa for a number of years. When I was there, people loathed the creamsicles. To talk about it, you know, publicly or in the office was almost, you know, a fireable offense. You know, everything that's, you know, old becomes new again. And, and I think when you see those uniforms come back, it is a part of history. I do think part of our uniforms now, they are close enough to where we wore, I think, historically, you know, from a blue and white perspective that, you know, that kind of throwback 
wouldn't work. So you'd have to be looking at a much deeper throwback, you know, probably into the fifties and sixties. Um, and I think it's trying, you know, there may be a time and place for that. Uh, as we look forward, there may be a time and place for, you know, an alternate top, but I think we feel good about where we're at now. Um, and, and excited to keep moving forward. Yeah. If I could, if I could just all real quickly, I, I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> no, I'm genuinely because you guys look, you, the, there was, there was a lot of thought and, and, you know, effort put into the, to the relaunch and, and the whole rebranding. And then, you know, you decided after a little bit, you you introduced the, the, the white alternates, which I think everybody, uh, most people agree were a slam dunk and just look, you know, gorgeous. And you made the decision to pivot from that and say, Hey, we're, this isn't just going to be something we wear a couple times a year. We're going to make this our, our part of our, our, you know, two, two main jerseys. Um, is that something you will continue to do just in terms of looking at like, is it, is it kind of a, like a living document, you know, kind of deal where you, you will continue to uh, weigh those kind of things and make those decisions? Or, or do you want to get to a point where you just say, this is our set and this is it? Oh, look, I think I've always said and believe in that it's a living document, right? How you look at <clears throat> your team, you take into account player feedback, fan feedback, you know, design feedback, where we're headed as a brand, what makes sense. Um, I think all of that plays into what you do um, and, and how you operate. And so I think you never want to live you know, with this idea that, hey, it's a fixed notion. You know, obviously there are guidelines and what the league will let you do. The third helmet changed some of that. You know, we could obviously, you know, look at that in a number of different ways. You could look at different tops, you could look at different bottoms. You can look at the whole closet again, you know, and how that relays. And, you know, I think all of it for us is, the goal of doing it because it's important to get it right, to do something we feel represents the brand and is not just, you know, a one-off. And, and maybe that's an evolution from where we started, which is, hey, we're going to hold these back to roll it out. But just because you can doesn't mean you should. And and I think that's probably where we weighed in, you know, as a brand. And, and there are a lot of different ways we've looked at, you know, merchandise outside of the uniforms, whether it's partnerships with Born and Raised or with Legends, you know, a lot of different concepts that people have really enjoyed and made, I think that's where the energy is at a little bit now more than just the uniform. Uh, I know, I know the other thing you just are dying for me to ask you about Kevin. Is it? I do not expect us to hang a banner. Yeah. No. Are you taking your kids to the Taylor Swift concert or are you, <laughs> are you going yourself? Do you have uh, an outfit that you're going to wear? Anything, any of those. What's your era, Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I'm so I'm an original Taylor Swift era. Um, I, I will say, you know, the younger Taylor Swift, uh, I lost a little bit of track in the middle. I'd, I'd say the part where there were a couple albums, you know, every year, maybe some of the darker phases. I would say, you know, in, in Jordan terms, right, there's like the early Sean McVay and the, the darker, more mature Sean McVay. <laughs> And I think Taylor's probably that way as well, right? Like, you know, 2000, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, Taylor is a little bit more of where, where I lean, although 1989 is probably my favorite album, um, which is more, you know, that's probably, you know, pre-first Super Bowl, Sean, if I were to say, you know, in, in where, in where Taylor is, right? This is the greatest, you know, mix up of collab Sean Taylor ever. Um, it's like you're but, making uh, a BuzzFeed quiz in real time. Like, which right, Taylor like, is Sean? Yeah. <laughs> which Taylor is Sean McVay, right? You know, and, 
you know, maybe 2017, you know, is his 22 or, you know, I'm, you know, what's the beginning, you know, teardrops on my guitar is, you know, 2017. <laughs> We've gone off the rails now, right? And, <laughs> I can't breathe. So, you know, but, you know, as, as they say in Office Space, I'm just here to enjoy the entire catalog. Um, so, there you go. You know, somehow we will, uh, he wrapped it up with a flourish. Yeah, that, that is how you wrap it up with a flourish. I will be there many nights. Uh, my daughter, I'm sure, would love to be there all six nights, but you know, she's got work to do a training camp on the social media beat. So, you know, uh-huh. we, we will we will see. But it'll be great to have you know Taylor end her tour at SoFi Stadium. I think it's a great you know to have her play six nights is a great hallmark for the stadium coming off of a fantastic you know Gold Cup and you know continual firsts for. The stadium but you know if they hang a banner in september rich i know that will be the end of the rams right that's it's it just... that's it abandoned <laughs> hope yeah hey, hey, about kevin. the world cup world cup kevin i mean i keep hearing uh things oh, i'll yeah, be, but, I'll be you outstanding know, if we get into this topic you, kevin already knows what i'm going to ask him about so yeah, i don't think so. yeah, we're, i don't want to get you in trouble uh you know I, we're, we're not going to go go down it would be great to host the world cup uh at SoFi, obviously, 2026, the Gold Cup was a great example of what I think international soccer can look like in that building. And, you know, hopefully we can, you know, be part of the conversation and bring the finals of the World Cup there along with hopefully we can get in line for another Super Bowl and all building up towards the 2028 Olympics opening and closing ceremonies will be an unbelievable run for, yeah. for SoFi Stadium. Yeah, boy, that, I can't wait for that. I mean, that's going to be those of us who are old enough to remember 84, you know, know what a great event that was for the city. So. Um, I can't, I can't wait uh, for, for the Olympics. So, um, that's, that's all I got. I, I have, ex- I have exhausted my list of, of, uh, topics that I, that I have. Taylor Taylor Swift in uniforms, right? That's it. Yeah. All he hit the bit trifecta there. That's but, it. Um, hey, Jordan, Kevin, you can't let him close with that. I, I know I'm not going to, it's actually a teaching question. Cause I think you, you mentioned something, uh, earlier that I don't think a lot of people are familiar with outside of like the incredibly nerdy rooms that you guys have all your Excel spreadsheets in. Um, can you go back to the, you were talking about the contract and like the, the, the little known qualities of the Matthew Stafford contract and how that would have worked. I'm wondering just from a salary cap perspective or a capologist, which I know Tony hates that phrase, but like, if can, can you kind of explain that just a little bit, like, like I'm five <laughs> or like we're, or like we're five. Um, because I don't think a lot of people are well, are really well versed in like what that actually means or meant structurally. And I think it would be a good opportunity to kind of shed a little more light on, on some of that financial stuff. Look, I think the the conversations, you know, I think NFL fans are so well versed in the salary cap, how it works, the ramifications and, and, and look, let's be honest. When people talk about, there's only one way to have a healthy salary cap and that's to maintain your spending, you know, at or below the salary cap. You know, there is, you know, restructuring a deal, you know, to convert money to move forward, you know, is just a, is an accounting trick, right? Ultimately, the way you get to a healthier salary cap is you have to make harder decisions about, you know, the actual money spent on players. Every dollar you spend gets counted at some time, you know, and, and, and look, we, and I would say as someone who's been part of the salary cap moving forward, some of the tried and true ideas about the salary cap probably have changed. People said, oh, you can't win a Super Bowl, you know, with a lot of dead money. We certainly, I think we we had the most dead money for any Super Bowl winner, you know, in time. And as the salary cap comes up, people have learned to take on, 
more of that. You know, there was a shock to the system, I would say, in COVID when the salary cap went down for the first time, right? That, and I would say that changed, if you want to say how, probably one of the biggest, I think, things I would say, Rich, to how you answered the question of how do you maintain versus stay? I don't think any of us, when we were planning, you know, our four or five, six years, ever foresaw a salary cap going from, you know, 200 million down to 182 million, right? Like, I think we plan every year, the salary cap's going to go up eight to 10 million. I think if you were to look at our sheets that are four or five years out, that's where we plan now. If it goes up more, great. I don't think anybody ever expected that. So in 2021, where, you know, what we were faced with was a salary cap that was 182 million with a team that was primed to go win the Super Bowl. How do you maintain that? How do you grow? How do you add? And that led to a number of cap gymnastics to push money down the road. That then led, you win the Super Bowl, you don't have a ton of space, but you want to maintain some of that roster. You're pushing money down the road again. That's truly how you get to where we are this year, which is where we do have $74 million you know, of dead money on a $225 million cap. Um, but you know, one of the things we did not June 1st, anybody this year, we could have taken proration later, you know, with the Jalen Ramsey trade, we took all of that proration. We took all of Leonard Floyd's proration. And a lot of that was to take that pain this year. Right now we have $0 of dead cap sitting on next year's cap. Um, and so I think, you know, Jordan, get back to your question is, yeah. you know, the, you know, anytime people, there are two conversations, right? The first is, you know, what are people owed and are you going, you know, if it's unguaranteed, what are you going, are you going to pay that? And the second is what are the salary cap ramifications, right? You can always figure out the salary cap ramifications. To me, the way we look at the world is, you know, what is the cash budget? How do we look at, you know, moving that forward? Because the one way you're ultimately going to get to greater salary cap flexibility is to have a lower cash budget at some point along the way. Any team, if you study them, that's ever had a significant amount of cap space, there's been a year where they did not spend as much, you know, and, and, and part of that's driven by, hey, if you have $74 million of dead money, there's only so much cash you can spend, you know, into this year, um, just by the way you write contracts and how that works. And so, you know, I think with every player, the question is, you know, it's not always the first question is always what it does to the cap, right? The first question is, you know, do you want to spend the money or do you want to spend that money on other players? And this isn't a Matthew conversation. You know, with Matthew, that was never the conversation. But for any time you enter, you know, a season and you're looking to extend players, there's an opportunity cost of every dollar you spend. There's an opportunity cost of every cash dollar you spend. There's an opportunity cost of every cap dollar you spend. And it's trying to understand what are the best ways to do that. Is it better to pay $4 million to one player or a million dollars to four players? Right. And I think, you know, some of those conversations and, and even I know we had a number of players this year who wound up kind of in that free agents, that three to four million dollar range. Um, you know, and the question is, do you keep those players? You know, yeah, it's not stretching that far. Yes, you'd love to have a Nick Scott, a Greg Gaines, all of those. Like it hurt to lose that group of players. But, you know, is it if you had a rookie there, could you amalgamate that room to say, hey, we can go get another $10 million player, another $12 million player. You know, where where is really the difference, you know, in that line? I think that's always the push-pull is how do you go create space in the current and in the future? Um, you know, with Matthew, and I think going back to your question, with Matthew in particular, 
we could have walked away without a dollar owed. You know, it would have been a significant salary cap impact. I'm not saying it would have, you know, but we could have solved that. You know, no doubt had you walked into the season knowing that, you you could have solved that. Um, but the first discussion point with Matthew was always, is Matthew Stafford the franchise quarterback? We believe he is. And the answer to that is a resounding yes. Once you get past that, then you go, okay, well, what's the best way to keep him from a salary cap perspective? And, you know, how do you work around those deals with the Cooper and Aaron, you know, who have larger deals, you know, take up a significant amount of space. Um, maybe try long-term not to get as lopsided, you know, there. Uh, how many players over, you know, 15, 20 million, you can do studies all day long. How many $20 million salary cap players can you have? How many $15 million salary cap players can you have? Well, it really depends on how many players you have at the back end of your roster who are contributing. How do you give those people that opportunity? Obviously right now, I think we have 55 players on the roster currently who are rookies or first year players, you know, last year, like that's the way you get to grow those. And hopefully we're setting ourselves up for when those players come up for their next contract. You know, we will have the ability to say, do we want to re-sign them or do we want to let them go to free agency? Right now, for the most part, we haven't had that ability in the past few years. It's been, hey, anybody who's been good, you know, has had to go to free agency. And I, I think even, you know, I don't think less than the personnel staff and Sean and the coaches get enough credit for the players they've developed, you know, on the second and third day of the draft, who may not be on our team, but, you know, are outstanding. I mean, you look at the 2018 draft. Joe Nopum is on a significant second contract. Oboe's on a significant second contract. Sebastian Joseph Day's, you know, on a, on a second contract. You know, you start to go on and on down the list. There's one other one, I think, from that class. You know, who, Brian Allen is on, on a second contract, has been a meaningful starter, you know, in a Super Bowl. Then you go to the following. Nick Scott's a seventh rounder, you know, got a good deal. Greg Gaines is a fourth rounder. Just because they're not here. I think people look at and say, well, how successful the class has been because they've been here. Some of those classes from a volume and a drafting standpoint weren't set up necessarily for those guys to be here. I think one of the changes is in a 14-person draft class like this year, you're hoping that you can keep a significant portion of them moving forward. I think that's one of the changes in, you know, in the philosophy. I'm still a big believer. There are only two ways to get great players in this league. You draft them or you trade for them. Free agency is still, you know, usually too much of, you know, a hit or miss area. You're going to have some success stories and some horror stories. That's always been, and, you know, and I, I think I wrote this in my letter. When you look at where we were as a franchise, we didn't have the draft capital to go win big trades anymore. We had kind of depleted that, which I, I think was frustrating, you know, at the trade deadline last year, you know, how you, you're always going to lose out on those packages, and then, you know, conversely, we didn't necessarily have the salary cap room, even if we could win those trades, to go do a large deal with the player. You know, and, and so you really found yourself, okay, we've exhausted those resources. If there's one thing I think we've done great this year, we've replenished all those resources. You look at next year, significant cap space, you know, and every year moving forward. We have every draft pick, you know, under our control next year, and we expect to get four comp picks. Um now we always say for now, like there's a joke in our office. How I know, long so that for now, last. I was about to say for now. Um, <laughs> but you know that means next year you're looking at another complement of you know 12, 13 picks. You know, should you choose to use them all? Uh, salary cap space. You know that means you know at the trade deadline this year. You know if we are where I expect us to be. Or we can be aggressive 
in the Jalen Ramsey, Vaughn Miller conversations that we used to be playing. Um, and unfortunately, you know, this league, other people have started, I don't want to say copying that formula because that's not fair. People have long before done this, but I think the risk premium, you know, has gone up, but it's an interesting pendulum. I, after we won the Super Bowl in 2021, everybody was trading first rounders and making big deals and moving forward. Uh, you didn't see that as much this year. And I don't know if that's because people view us as a cautionary tale, which I think is the wrong way to look at, you know, our 2022 season, you know, but overall, I think the, you know, one of the things that they can do, it's not a matter of resources when it comes to salary cap, but, you know, discipline. I think that was another word that came up this year was, could we be disciplined for one off season? Because if we could, we'd be set up great for the future. And I, I feel we really were. And, by the way, I have no less excitement and expectations for this football team uh, than we would any other year. And, and I can't wait for this year to come to fruition and and hopefully validate the approach this offseason. Well, we had to get back to a football close here after the uh, Taylor Swift, Sean McVay personality test. Um, but Kevin, we have kept you way too long. Thank you for your time today. This is something I know Rich and I, we look forward to this conversation every year. We've somehow forced you into making it a tradition um, inadvertently and and not so subtly. <laughs> and so um, we really do appreciate your time. Yeah, always thanks, fun Kevin. guys. O yeah, always we, we... Hopefully someone can, you know, get something out of this by listening, you know, to all of it, but you know, we didn't even get to Edgar Allan Poe. Well, I didn't know him. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, in all seriousness, as somebody, uh, Kevin is always accessible, but not everyone in his position around sports would take the time to do this. Um, so I hope that's, that's appreciated. I know the Jordan, I appreciate it. And, um, yeah, thanks very much, Kevin. And, um, we'll talk to you next July and, uh, we'll, we'll start pushing you on those 2025, uh, uniforms then. Yeah. Meanwhile, guys, uh, want to make sure that everybody we're, we're back. Uh, 11 personnel is back and training camp is right around the corner. Hope you guys are uh, checking out the athletic.com and the play callers podcast series, um, wherever you get your podcasts after this one, of course. Um, hope you guys are staying hydrated. Hope you guys are staying caffeinated, taking care of each other, yourselves. We'll catch you next time. Mm -hmm.